Well, Gayla Reed is a rock. Now, if you know her, that's not fair. She's a diamond. She didn't come that way, though. No one does. It was 1979. Rochelle was 16 years old and the oldest of Bill and Gayla's three daughters. Blonde hair, blue eyes, a shy girl, very sweet, and a junior at Sandia High School here in town. On a weekend in May, Rochelle and a few friends were headed down to Elephant Butte to watch the boat races. A married couple in the middle of a bitter divorce was on their way back from visiting their houseboat at the lake. It was a four-lane road, but because of construction, it narrowed to two lanes. So one lane for each side. Rochelle was in the proper lane. The oncoming car was in the proper lane, but then switched into her lane. Rochelle switched, the car switched. Rochelle switched again, the car switched. It's as though they were trying to dodge each other at this point, but they didn't get out of each other's way in time for a head-on collision. Richard, the driver of Rochelle's car, was decapitated. The car landed upside down on the car behind them with friends who were going with them to the lake. They lived. Rochelle just broke her wrist and her collarbone, but she was unconscious and in a coma. She was in the hospital for a week when her brain started to swell and Gail and her husband, Bill, with much prayer and counsel, made the grueling decision to take Rochelle off life support just one week after the accident and on Mother's Day, 1979. Bill and Gayla's neighborhood felt it. Richard's funeral was on a Wednesday. There was a wedding that weekend for another gal in the neighborhood and then Rochelle died and then Rochelle's funeral. Gayla shared this reflection with me. Something happened to me that gave me perspective on what's important to God following Rochelle's death. I walked into a store one time and a girl about Rochelle's age pushed in front of me. She was rude, immodestly dressed, and was snapping her gum. My immediate thought was, why is she living in my daughter's stead? Now the spirit convicted her and corrected that thought almost immediately. Gayla thought to herself, well this girl doesn't know the Lord yet. Perhaps God is working. But oh, how suffering brings our theology to light, the subtleties of our theology. If someone had to die, why the sweet shy girl? Who is in charge here? Why did this bad thing happen to this good girl? The question we've just asked is just a rephrasing of the question raised by the book of Job. God was at work in Gala. God is at work in the course of this book in Job. And in the course of this series, now the fourth of five parts, He's at work in our hearts as well. Well, today is the day that Job and many of us have been waiting for. So please, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. Today's sermon will come in two parts, roughly along uh, the lines of chapter 38 and 39, and then 40 and 41. It will end at verse 6 of 42. Let me set the stage. Today we meet God in the courtroom. We meet God in the courtroom. Job has asked that God show up to hear his case. Of course, we know that Job was a blameless man. He was a blameless man. God even said that of ever, every, anyone in the world, this guy was his most faithful. Job's life was full of joy, full of happy children, 
full of wealth. He was a wealthy man, a responsible businessman who oversaw a uh, very large and successful business. Even by today's standards, he would be rich. Anyone who has 3,000 camels is rich already. But we were led in on a little meeting in heaven that Job knew nothing about, though it had everything to do with him. Satan was allowed to approach God's throne, and when he did, he accused God of being worthless. No one obeys you for your sake, only for what you give them. God held up Job as his example of a faithful servant on the earth and allowed Satan to have his way with Job to show that Job would not curse God as Satan insisted that he would to his face. We learn that there are many different invisible players in this universe and in our lives, each with their own purposes, and all of them, though, under God's authority. So with his own evil intent, Satan took all the leash he was given. He pillaged Job's wealth, he killed his children, he, he squandered his wealth, killed his children with a windstorm, and took Job's health to the brink of death. Even his wife said to him, curse God and die. Why do you still hold your integrity? And of course, as the story goes, Job refused. Job didn't know about Satan's part in all this in the heavenly meeting, and yet Job did not sin when he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job did not sin when he said to his wife, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? But after seven days in silence, alone with his thoughts, with quiet friends, Job's soul went to a dark place. Then surrounded by three friends and their theology which insisted that Job deserved his suffering, Job insisted that he did not deserve his suffering. And in this declaration that he was a victim of divine injustice, Job boldly questioned the goodness of God. He asked the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? And to Job, this wasn't a matter of curiosity, but of basic justice. Bad things should not happen to good people. By implication, God must not be good. So Job has asked God to meet him in court. In Job 23, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Then an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. And to finish off his own closing argument defending his innocence, he says, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Well, closing arguments are the thing, kind of thing that you want to put together very carefully. Job believes that his case is airtight and he has made it. He is confident he will be acquitted if he can only get a hearing. But this didn't sound right to Elihu, a young man who was listening, and in fact, it couldn't have sounded more wrong to Elihu. In Job 32, we read that he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And Elihu burned at anger also at Job's three friends because they'd found no answer. So Elihu took it upon himself to answer Job and taught him that through all suffering, though mysterious, God is working out our pride. And he confronted Job with a vision of God in Job 37. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. His voice roars. He thunders with a majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. And when Elihu was done speaking, this morning's text tells us in Job 38.1, the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. God spoke from the storm. He showed up in court. 
And now God will deliver his closing argument. God will come to Job with some questions of his own. So with every ear fixed and ready for what the Lord would say to Job, God spoke. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut the seed doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set its bars and doors, and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your day began, Job, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory? and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and your number of days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on a desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades? Or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in its season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven and can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Or who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Now let's consider the animals, Job. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch and bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom 
to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great and will you leave uh, to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return to your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich, they wave proudly. But are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that a wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and has given her no share in understanding. Yet when she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at horse and rider. And about the horse, do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag his stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. He, he, his eyes behold it from afar. His young ones suck up blood. And where the slain are, there he is. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Job's mouth is shut. The courtroom is silent. And our mouths are shut as well. We have just heard the transcript for the first part of God's closing argument. Let's debrief on what just happened in the courtroom. Job called God to court to put him on trial, but when God showed up, God turned the tables and Job found himself on trial. And if we had to sum it up in a sentence, when God answered Job from the whirlwind, he said, Job, are you the boss of the world and its creatures? Are you the boss of the world and its creatures? This takes us from chapter 38 through 40, verse 5. What would you say you do here, Job? The Lord peppered Job with questions, questions crafted to remind him of the things that he does not know and the things that he cannot do in the places that he has not ever been and cannot go. And don't miss God's tone of voice. I have a book at home that I bought from a resale shop. It's called Quiet Whispers from God's Heart for Men. And it's got a picture of a guy standing on a fence looking out into a meadow. And I don't know what's in that book, but I don't like it. 
It is not inspiring to me. Um, God will speak to us in various ways. He speaks to Job here in a way that is appropriate to Job's need. He speaks to Job in a thunderstorm. His questions are filled with rhetorical flair, if you didn't pick it up, sarcasm, dark humor, and no shortage of zingers. He does not respond to all sufferers this way because this is not what all sufferers need. And this is not even what Job needed in the first instance of his suffering. It's what he needed now after he has questioned the goodness of God and accused God of wrong. God's questions come in four pairs. Job said, answer me. God says in the first pair, Job, are you the boss of the land and the sea? Verse four, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Verse eight, who shut in the sea with its doors? Verse 11, and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Job's answer, we can imagine what he's thinking. I wasn't there because I didn't exist and the waves don't respond to my voice. I'm a man and you are God. The second pairing, Job, are you the boss of the light and the dark? Verse 12, have you commanded the morning? Verse 16, have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Verse 21, do you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Job's response, no, the sun doesn't listen to me, and I can't walk at the bottom of the ocean, under the water, where it's very dark. I'm a man, and you are God. Third pairing, Job, are you the boss of the snow and the water? Are you the boss of the snow and the water? Verse 22, have you entered into the storehouses of snow or have you seen the storehouses of hail? Verse 25, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and the way for the thunderbolt? Verse 26, to bring rain on a land where there is, where no man is. Job's answer, no, I can only go where man goes. I'm a man you are God. In the fourth pairing, Job, are you the boss of the stars and the clouds? The things that orbit the earth, God's gifts to us that float above our heads, that drop water on us and give us light at night? Verse 31, can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go up and say to you, here we are? And of course, Job should say in his mind, the stars and lightning pay me no attention because I am a man and you are God. Okay, great. Now that we've got that covered, let's look at the animal kingdom. Seven to represent the whole thing. How about the lion? Do you feed that? No. Or the mountain goat? Do you know where, he, uh, where she has her babies? No. Or the free-ranging donkey? Did you teach that thing to disregard everyone? No. Or the ox? Will it sleep where you tell it to? No. Or how about the ostrich? Did you make her the worst mom and the fastest runner? No. How about the war horse? Did you make it fearless in battle? No. Or the untouchable hawk? Did you teach it to fly, to make its nest in the skies, and to hunt its prey from afar? The answer is no. Just think about the amazing diversity among the creatures that God has made. The amazing diversity. Size, kind, color, how they reproduce, how they eat food, how they breathe. It's wild out there. 
He could have made just one kind of animal, or maybe different kinds of animal, but all the same color. No, he didn't do that. God's behind the diversity in the animal kingdom, from insects to bats to penguins, with all of their strangeness, goofiness, wisdom, or lack of wisdom. So watch TV shows that teach you about animals. Sure, the narrator will have no idea how they got that way. But you know, it's God's handiwork. So watch and worship. But what are we doing in court again with God? What are we doing in court again? Why is God here in court? Oh yeah, Job said that God did something wrong. God's closing argument so far has made us not just a little unsure about the premise of Job's argument that his innocence actually matters. You see, in God's closing argument, God exploited a giant weakness in Job's argument, something crucial that he forgot, namely that he is not God. Job is not God. God is God. Job is Job. Or as Elihu put it, God is greater than man. Job asked God why, but God has not answered Job's question. Neither has God corrected Job for claiming that he was blameless, actually. He's confronting Job for laying blame at God. Job asked God why. God has answered with who. This is who I am. He does not answer Job's question. Job was confident in his closing argument, but God as well is confident in his, especially confident. And amazingly, God did something that you just don't do in a closing argument. He turned to Job and gave him a chance to object and to speak. Any problem with this, Job? Job can only cover his mouth. He doesn't even attempt an explanation or a defense for what he has said. The Lord's case is airtight. There are things that God knows that Job doesn't know and that we don't know. There are things that God can do that Job can't do and that we can't do. And there are places that God dwells that Job can't go and that we will never go. This is the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God we're dealing with here, the boss of the world and all of its creatures. Reflecting on Rochelle's death, Gala shared this with me. When something like this happens, you come to a spiritual fork in the road. I know what's true. Am I going to believe this or am I not going to believe this? As I thought about it, I thought, where else should I go? If I don't believe this, I'm doomed, I've doomed myself to a life of bitterness and shaking my fist at God. But no, the most important thing, now that I look back, that I have ever learned, I learned through this loss to really believe, really believe in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. God is sovereign and he is good. I speak with some people about the sovereignty of God and they may look at me with a blank look on their face. They don't understand it yet. You see the experience of suffering teaches our hearts what we may acknowledge in our minds. Once you grasp that concept of God's sovereignty, it's just so freeing. And that's from a woman who lost her 16-year-old daughter uh, in a senseless, truly senseless, Job-like car accident. But Job isn't free like this yet. He's convinced of the sovereignty of God and humbled under the sovereignty of God. But is he convinced of God's goodness? Has he tasted that goodness personally yet? Well, thankfully, the Lord is not done talking. He's not done talking because he's not done with Job. And this book isn't over because God's not done with us. 
He has more to accomplish in Job than silence and humility. He means to bring about repentance, and he's going to do that by instilling hope. Like a roller coaster that you thought was over, we're only halfway done, and the second half will make us forget the first half. If we read it right, the sarcasm thickens and the humor darkens, so buckle up. Chapters 40 and 41, starting at 40 verse 6, we'll read the transcript for this half of God's clothing argument, and I'll provide some light commentary as we go. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Sounds like Elihu's beef, by the way. Job justified himself instead of God and presumed that he was greater than God. It's not wrong to say I didn't deserve this suffering. It's wrong to say that God is wrong because of my suffering. And now God says, okay, Job, put on my royal gear. You rule the world. The proud, you put them in the dust. Verse 10, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge you that your own right hand can save you. And now he holds out another creature for Job to ponder. Verse 15, behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins and his power in his muscles is in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. His sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him. Where all the wild beasts play, under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. One can take him by the who can can one take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare. Now here's a second creature for Job to consider. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heavens is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him in a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face around, the teeth is, around his teeth is terror? His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined to one another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings 
flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee, for him slings stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. On earth, there is not his like. He is king over all the sons of pride. In this second half of God's closing argument, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and this time he says, Job, are you the boss of Behemoth and Leviathan? Are you the boss of Behemoth and Leviathan? Now let's talk about this. This was not the answer to the problem of evil or pain that you or I would have expected. It's not the expected climax to God's argument for his goodness. Two creatures we've never heard of. But it's a deeply satisfying answer. God is the boss. It should be plain from this reading of untamable evil. Untamable evil. The most horrible creatures imaginable that we cannot kill are not a problem for God. So the main point is clear and that's good. Because some of us are ambivalent about these monsters and other of us are way distracted by these monsters. My wife got tired of me talking about these monsters this last week. But to get the depth of resolution the text is meant to bring, I think we sort of got to nail them down and figure out what they are. And last night I, I uh, persuaded Christy that it was worth it. So I hope you'll find that it's worth it as well. This is not just a restatement of God's sovereignty over evil. This is a God's knockout combination for Job's philosophical and deeply personal question about the problem of evil and pain. A knockout combination. So what do we know about these creatures? Well, the behemoth was a terrifying land monster. A plant eater eats grass, he's huge, strong belly muscles, his bones are like tubes of bronze, he hides in the shadows under the lotus plants, water lilies. He stands against rushing water without fear with his mouth open. Nothing can kill him. The second animal, the Leviathan, was a sea monster, a terrifying sea monster. He doesn't negotiate, he won't play nice with your kids. You can't buy or sell him in the marketplace. No one dares wake him up. Lots of scary teeth, plates on his back that can't be separated. And he breathes fire and makes the sea like ointment as it boils. So we've got a few options here. We've got a few options, okay? The, the hyperbole option. This is, these are regular animals that have been blown up by a poetry grenade. 
Regular, regular animals that have been po- uh, blown up by a po- poetry grenade. We're talking about the hippo and the alligator, often seen together from time to time in the art of the time. This is a common view. But it seems a little anticlimactic, as one writer, and I think this is hilarious, famously said, is God's answer to the problem of evil really, look at the hippo. Uh, so. Then there's the unicorn option. The unicorn option. These are mythological creatures borrowed from the culture around them. He's saying, look at those great creatures at the myth at the mythical world that the pagan religions think up, I'm stronger than mankind's worst nightmare. But while there is almost certainly overlap, there is with ancient Near East mythology, this is a bit anticlimactic too, because these things aren't real. Like when I put my daughter down, Madeline, and she's scared of the beast in the closet these days, I don't always comfort her by saying it isn't there. Sometimes I do that. Sometimes I say I can kill him. And sometimes I say, God can destroy anything you think up, sweetheart. God can destroy and is bigger than the beast in the closet. But I wouldn't pull that out as my concluding argument in a speech defending God's greatness. Then there's the extinct creature option. These are some kind of extinct creature of the kind that we've dug up, perhaps dinosaurs. The passage seems to describe real animals that eat real things. He's described other animals in his speech. They live in familiar places and interact with humans and These could be extinct beasts. But the scary plant-eating dinosaurs we know about don't really fit under lotus plants, water lilies. And in other places in the Old Testament, Leviathan has seven heads. We haven't dug one of those up yet. Then there's the Bible story option. Call it the Bible story option. He's talking about death and Satan. And you're thinking, I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing death and Satan. I'm seeing descriptions of two monsters. This route is actually the most convincing to me, and it actually doesn't rule out the possibility of a real-world referent or overlap with ancient mythology. It just goes way beyond both. There are some indications that behemoth is death, represents death. It comes from the plural form of the word beast and means mega beast. He eats grass. That he eats grass overlaps with other literature which describes evil creatures as devouring the land. And there are some parallels with the description of this beast and the Canaanite god Mot, the god of death. But if that isn't totally clear, it seems clear enough to me that Leviathan actually does represent Satan. And if we can nail that down, then these two are a pair. So here are four reasons, four reasons that you can memorize and take with you wherever you go why Leviathan is Satan. Leviathan is Satan. First, Leviathan's position, he's the king of pride. Remember, on earth there's not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over the sons of pride. Pride is the molten core of evil. Pride was at the heart of Satan's fall, described in Ezekiel 28. Because of your heart, because of your, your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. You were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. No surprise then that pride, that that pride in God's rule over the proud book ends the whole section of this half of God's Closing argument. It bookends this whole section so that in Job 40 we read, look on everyone who is proud, Job, and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. 
hide them in the dust together. And then he holds up Behemoth and Leviathan, who at the very last description of Leviathan is the king of the sons of pride. Leviathan is a king of pride. First. Second, Leviathan is the book's climax of evil. It's the book's climax of evil. Where did Satan go, by the way? So Satan was no small figure, no small character uh, at the beginning of the book, but he's gone, and he's not going to show up in name before the end. He disappears, in a way, after chapter 2. But described with poetry in a way that he could not be so horrifyingly described otherwise, perhaps he actually is right here. This is a very well-written book, and perhaps this is an amazing resolution to the Satan character. And this wouldn't have been unobvious to Job, who cried out to die by speaking of those in chapter 3 who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. And that's because, third, Leviathan is the embodiment of evil in other places in the Bible's story. In other places in the Bible story, Psalm 74, when the writer describes God's salvation of Israel through the Exodus, he says this, you divided the sea by your might, you broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters, you crushed the heads of Leviathan, you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Now you'd have thought we'd have gotten that in the Exodus account. Now he crushed Pharaoh and parted the seas and delivered his people. In Canaanite mythology, the sea was a place of chaos. The sea monsters often have met seven heads. And biblical writers will pick up and borrow this imagery to poetically represent God's rule over Satan and his minions. God crushed Pharaoh. In Isaiah, which describes evil in the world and the nations, Leviathan is picked up as a summary symbol of evil. Isaiah 27. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that's in the sea. Hearing this, there are almost certain parallels here to the serpent in Genesis 3, that ancient reptile, dragon on the ground. And all this sounds a bit like a line from the climax of one of Job's own speeches when he describes God's power over evil and says his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. So Leviathan is the king of pride. He's the climax of evil in the book of Job and he's the embodiment of evil elsewhere in the Bible's story. And fourth, Leviathan appears to imitate God here, even in Job. There are about six features in this description of Leviathan which parallel descriptions of God when God appears elsewhere in the Old Testament. You can kind of lay them up next to each other. You think, oh, This is what Satan does. He imitates, he parades as God. So in my mind, this is enough, and I love it. I love it. I first saw these monsters in the text, and I went, great. Um, Now I'm just, these are my favorite monsters now. Um, And so it's no surprise then, in Psalm 104, we see Leviathan described as one of God's water toys. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Some say, oh, that proves Leviathan isn't that nasty. No, 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 you don't understand. This proves that God is powerful. Leviathan that none of us can kill is God's play toy, you see? And so it's no surprise that in Revelation we read that the dragon was thrown down. The what? The ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down. Folks, God is saying to Job, Job, yes, untamed evil is running all around. 
and they don't like it, but they're mine. I've got the leash and I will put them in the dust and I will do it in my time according to my plan. I'm the boss of the world and its creatures and I'm the boss of Behemoth and Leviathan. I'm the boss of the visible world and I'm the boss of the invisible forces that are wreaking havoc on your life. And so we see that suffering and God's sovereignty are not simplistically understood things. If we encounter death and we have time for only 10 words or less, we should say God is sovereign and he has wise purposes. But if we know we've got time for 20 words or less, we should say God hates death, Satan is a killer, but God is sovereign and he has wise purposes. And when we say things like this, we can say it with more perspective than Job had, for Job was in the dark as to God's ultimate purpose and we are not. There's more to Job's story, and there's more to the Bible's story, much, much more. And we can see it from where we're at. From where we're at, we can see a cross between us and the story of Job. For Jesus came down, Hebrews 2.14 says, that through death he might destroy, who? The one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through who, fear, through, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God's son, came down and lived a perfect life and then died, suffering death in order to deliver us from death by it. And how did Jesus' death defeat death and Satan? Well, Jesus died, Hebrews tells us, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And don't miss how important that is. We needed propitiation for our sins. We, we deserved punishment. Jesus took the punishment for our sins. It means that Jesus died in order to take the wrath of God that we actually do deserve and to take it on himself. You see, for much of the world's suffering, there isn't any rhyme or reason that we can see. We don't need to figure out why a tsunami hits this country or why a tragedy hits this person. But it is true of all of us born in Adam that in the end, we deserve the just wrath of God. You see, our ultimate problem is not Satan. It is not Satan. Our ultimate problem is sin, and Job's ultimate problem is not Satan, but sin. We love the lies that Leviathan speaks. This is the truth. We love the lies that Leviathan speaks. We're intrigued by him, and we love the smell of behemoth. We play with it. And if we continue in sin until we die, we get exactly what we've been pursuing, eternal suffering and slavery to these monsters. But by paying for our sins on the cross, Jesus Christ released us from the power of both. And God didn't have to send Jesus, as he says here, uh, who has first given to me that I should repay him? God owes us nothing. Yet it is good for us that God is not just sovereign but good and that his goodness is expressed in mercy towards sinners. Out of the whirlwind, Job heard God's voice and felt this mercy. And Job's response is a model for all of us. Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and, I will make, and you will make it known to me. I said, I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. 
Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job confessed God's wisdom and his sovereignty, and he confessed his own foolishness and his sin. And this is for all of us to do. If you are here and don't know God and have not confessed to God, I am wrong about me and you. And I have been wrong. And you are right. You are God and I am man. Then it's time to do that. To repent as Job did. To acknowledge the sovereignty of God that no purpose of his can be thwarted. And to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and died for your sins. When my daughter Shay is in trouble with me these days, she doesn't run from me. She runs right into my chest and locks onto me with a hug and doesn't let go as though for dear life. Isn't that interesting? It's like that with us and God. God answered Job from a whirlwind. Job was absolutely terrified. He did not speak. And yet in the end, this is exactly the answer Job needed so that when God was done speaking, Job could open his mouth and say from his heart, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now my eyes have seen you. And he repents. And by the way, Job still doesn't have any specific answer to why God brought such calamity on his life. He doesn't have any idea that it was actually because of his blamelessness that God chose him for Satan to attack. But God hasn't thought it necessary to disclose this to him in order to bring about the change that God wanted to see in Job through his suffering. And in response, Job responds very well. He doesn't say, oh, I see, now I understand. I didn't know how great you were. Thank you for telling me. He doesn't say anything like that. He says merely, I was wrong about you. You are right, and he repents. And Job doesn't repent of his sins that brought on his suffering. Job repents of the arrogance and presuming that he knew better than God. For he was right all along. He didn't deserve, there wasn't a correspondence between what happened to him and how he was living. And yet God was in charge. So my friends, when you suffer, remember Gala. She said this to me this week. I can remember a day in the years after Rochelle's death. I looked out the window and saw Lisa was driving and Leslie with her, their other two daughters. And as they pulled away, my heart just sank into my toes. And then I remembered what I believed. No, I'm not going to be afraid. If God chooses to take them, he is sovereign. And that is fine with me. And she can say this for even God knows what it is to lose a son. And we know that God did and yet was in perfect control. Acts 2 tells us that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God even as he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. God sent his own son to the cross, Jesus crucified by many unjust evil characters. Satan enticing Judas to turn on Jesus, the religious leaders, the crowd, Pilate, the Gentiles, the soldiers, Jesus on a cross unjustly, God in charge of the whole operation. And so when you suffer, ask yourself, was I there when the earth's foundations were laid? Do I tell the waves where to stop? Do I know where the mountain goat gives birth? Did I give the ostrich her lack of wisdom? And remind yourself, the answer is no. That God did. And most importantly, 
surprisingly importantly, can I pierce behemoth or put Leviathan on a leash for my girls? No, I can't. But Jesus slew them both with two wooden beams. We may not always understand why things happen, but through Jesus Christ, because of his work, and because of God's kindness, we can know the one who does. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you right now for this strong, this direct, this thunderously loud, even this sarcastic word to Job. And we listen in not as those who have the perfect perspective and need no correction ourselves. We identify with Job in many, many ways. In fact, Father, this book was inspired by your spirit for us to learn. We acknowledge your sovereignty and we acknowledge your goodness. Your sovereignty and your goodness, which Jesus acknowledged even as he was crucified. Job's life was not taken. Jesus hangs on the cross, separated from his father, according to your wise and good and sovereign plan. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.